I have a basket of questions. Actually, um, Cody, can you just reach in here and hand me one? All right. Here, take the basket and I'll ask you for another one in a minute. All right. So I'm going to be working. Normally we don't use the, uh, the Pew Bibles, uh, for complicated copyright reasons, but we're going to use it today. So if you want to follow along, I'll be using the same Bible that's in the Pew Bible. So, um, let us now, um, uh, pray for God's illumination. Teach us your ways, O Lord, that we may live according to your truth. Grant us purity of heart so that we may honor you. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. All right. The first question is, if God knows what's in my heart, why should I pray? That's a great question. Um, it would save so much time. <laughs> um, and I think that that's probably the answer. Um, uh, the I'm trying to think of a, of a verse. I'm, I'm such a Presbyterian. I I feel awkward just kind of giving you the answer without without finding some justification in Scripture. Um, the you know the probably the best answer is this: Jesus um, was not only um, uh, in a relationship with God that we would like to 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 model, but Jesus was God. So if anybody had the mind of God when they when they um, had prayer concerns, it would be Jesus. We can only wish that we could we could have that kind of access to to the mind and heart of God. Um, and yet Jesus spent all kinds of time in prayer. His disciples were always were always amazed at how much he prayed. And in fact, um, they asked him for the Lord's prayer, which we just heard. So um, you know, sometimes we can say to ourselves, you know, I don't need to really know the answer because. Because I just have a model, you know, um, the the tradition that this church is part of, the the reform tradition, has been accused of being kind of heady, that that it's all about um, uh, words and and doctrines and things like that. Um, but in in the uh, in the first century, most learning was done on the job. The disciples were kind of apprentices, so they learned how to be. Uh, like Jesus by following Jesus. And, you know, Jesus is doing this, I'll do that. And I think there's something to be said for that, just simply saying, look, um, I don't have to understand it, or I don't have to understand it yet. I should pray uh, because Jesus is doing it. So, um, and and having said that, uh, so in Luke chapter 11, which is on page 72 in the back section of the book, um, so uh, we read about the when Jesus I uh, was given the the Lord's prayer. Um, he was praying in a certain place, and after he'd finished, one of his disciples said, "Lord, teach us to pray." So uh, Jesus Jesus is being a master, and they are being disciples. And they might have wondered the same thing. Well, you know, God already knows what what's the point of this? Why why should I why should I pray? Um, so. <coughs> So part of the answer, part of the answer is that Jesus does it. So let's try to do what He does. Um, a more theological answer that people sometimes use is they say the point is not to give God new information. The point is for us to accommodate ourselves to what God is doing, to spend time in prayer so that God can actually talk back to us. Maybe that's you know I think so often we think about prayer as you know I'm going to do the talking. You know, I'm going to give him my laundry list, take care of these four four things, God. And then, you know, 
over and out, see you later, you know, I'll catch you uh, and evaluate your performance against my, my uh, list of job responsibilities I just gave you. And the, the point of prayer is it's supposed to be two-way. And it's, you know, so there's something to be said for just spending some time and letting God speak to you in prayer. So maybe that would help you to, to, um, to understand this. God already knows what's in your heart, but if you spend time talking to God about it in your heart, then um, God can answer back and say, well, you know, you're right to be concerned or, you know, it's going to be ugly or God can say, you know, no, I've got that. Don't worry about it. All, everything's taken care of. So whatever whatever it is God might be telling you about a particular situation, that would be my answer. Um, but it would be it would be second to the, the the main answer, which is Jesus did it. So sometimes we just do what Jesus says. All right. All right. Next question: Why is communion not offered every Sunday? All right. The answer is talk to counsel. Um, so, so, so um, the the organization of this church is that is that pastors get to make certain decisions and counsel gets to make certain decisions. And going back five hundred years uh, to the Protestant Reformation, the decision about how frequently to celebrate the Lord's Supper was. Um, was left in the hands of the lay leadership. The, 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 um, a pastor could offer his advice, but they didn't have to take it. And in fact, um, the, the originator of the Reformed tradition that this church is part of, uh, was John Calvin. So uh, he was, uh, he was, uh, leading a church in Geneva and, uh, Geneva, Switzerland. And he said, let's have, let's have communion every week. And his, his, uh, what was it called? The consistory. The, the leaders, the leaders of the church, uh, they said, let's not. And Calvin said, you're wrong, but it's important that you be, that you be the, the ones who make, it's even more important that you have the freedom to be wrong in this area than it is for me to be right about, about how often we celebrate communion. So, uh, Calvin, you know, in the, if you think back 500 years ago, Churches were pretty much led, you know, top down, starting at the Pope and, and working down to the, the local church level. And the thing that Calvin thought was more important than anything else, even the celebration of the Lord's Supper, was to reclaim the idea of the priesthood of Lord, uh, the priesthood of all believers. That, that you in whatever your ministry is, is just as much a part of the work that God is doing in this world as what I do. And that was what Calvin said was even more important than celebrating the Lord's Supper. Um, the uh, the um, the other thing is uh, traditionally. So I'm I'm looking at page 173, also in the back, First Corinthians 11. Paul talks about um, abuses at the Lord's Supper. So um, so 173 abuses at the Lord's Supper, verse 17. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. You don't want the Apostle Paul saying, saying, I do not commend you. He says, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear there's divisions among you, um, that uh, uh, there will be factions among you. And so he says, when you come together, it is not really eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, 
One goes hungry and another one becomes drunk. This is something that Christianity changed culture so much we can't even imagine. If you got invited to a rich man's party back in the first century, he would eat steak and you would eat hamburger because that was, that was, that was just the way it was done. It was kind of a way of not letting you get above your station, that you were in the lower class, you, you didn't have that money, and he did. And so even though you're invited to the same dinner party, there'd be separate menus for the guests based on what their, what their status was in the culture. And Paul is saying, you can't do that. You've got to have equality around the table. And because of that, he says people are doing it wrong, and so it's important that you do it in a, in a well-regulated way, that basically everybody understands what's going on, and there's not these abuses. And so um, he said, uh, he says, do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? That that, that is not the right way to celebrate the uh, Lord's Supper. So the the idea was, um, the, the thing that's at work is, if we do it every week, we will probably... Uh, not give it the seriousness that it that it takes, and we will we will forget that people have particular needs that we're we're missing as we as we go about our celebration. So, all right, give me another one. Give me one of the. Oh, all right, all right. Why don't we have a highlighted cursor to assist with singing? All right. This this is a volunteer, I think. <laughs> so um, so somebody wants to volunteer to help out with our technology. Um, so uh, that's a great question. It would certainly be easier. Um, I know there's some other people in this building who are old enough to remember Sing Along with Mitch. I wasn't, but I remember seeing screenshots of it when I was small. So my parents would use that phrase, Sing Along with Mitch. There'd be a bouncing ball... And uh, we don't we don't have that technology. Um, there are churches that do, um, but uh, but we don't have that technology. We are looking at some <coughs> we are looking at some upgrades to the way we do our um, uh, service, uh, but we don't have that capability right yet. Um, so uh, if you would like to volunteer, uh, if you have particularly if you have knowledge in this area. We are always looking for volunteers. Um, so, no Bible verse for you. <laughs> actually, actually, here, um, Colossians three, great Bible verse. So, so what does he say here? He says, um, he says. So this is page two hundred one. He says, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms." Hymns and spiritual songs to God. So, there you go. So, as as we stumble through our our slides, you know how, you know how much better they've been since Celia started looking at them. Because I hand her a mess and she sorts out almost all of it. So, um, the slides are going to be a lot better because of that. So, we are looking to improve though, because we know it's not it's not great. All right, the pink one. Okay, one more pink one. All right, all right. How do I know? And hear, hear God when He speaks to me. All right, that's that's a good question. Um, so I'm always trying to think of where's a where's a place um, that. Uh, all right. Um, so how do I know that I'm hearing God 
um, when he speaks to me? Um, that is a that is a good question, uh, and the short answer is you probably don't, um, because because uh, as we heard earlier in our worship service, in the letter to the Hebrews, the writer says the cl- the sin that clings so closely to us, that that just because we got saved doesn't mean there's not any more sin anywhere around us. That we may now no longer be under the power of sin, but sin is going to go on whispering in our ear and saying, "Do this." So, <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> so, something we can ask is is um, we can ask: Is this something that um, that is in accordance with what uh, God has taught me in His Word? Um, the I turned it off again. Okay. Well, is this in accordance with what God has taught me in the Word? God does not contradict Himself. So, for example, the the classic example that that preachers talk about is somebody comes into their office and says, um, "Pastor, I'm thinking the the Lord. I've been praying a lot about this, and I think the Lord wants me to have an affair." <laughs> you know, I've been thinking a lot about this, and uh, um, she works down the hall. You know, and and I guarantee you that 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 is that is a place where you would say, you know what, you did exactly the right thing. You came to another Christian and said, I would appreciate some counsel because my thinking is muddled, my thinking is conflicted, and I'm not really sure if I'm hearing from God or not. There are 57 times in the New Testament, where 59 times in the I forget. There's a lot. Of, there's almost 60 times in the New Testament where Christians are called to do things for one another, to pray for one another. To, um, to urge one another, to exhort one another, um, to provoke one another. Um, there's all these one another's in the New Testament. And so something you can do if, if you've read in the Bible and it says, you know, I mean, it, you're not going to find anything about having an affair in there. Um, but it didn't stop some of the people in the Bible, but long story. Um, so, uh, mine's going in four directions. So, um, so, consult what God says in his word and uh, consult other Christians. Wise Christian counsel. That's the best answer I can give you is um, God's not going to contradict himself in his word and uh, a good Christian counsel can actually help you um, unpack what it is you're really getting at. When I was becoming um, the process of, of going to, uh, to to seminary to, to become a pastor, uh, my church put together a... Um, a discernment group whose whole purpose was to help me understand what it was that God was speaking to me. That that it wasn't a gatekeeper, you know, if God's calling you, God's calling you. But we want to help you understand better what it is God is saying to you. So they asked me all kinds of questions. It's like, well, no, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. And I prayed about those things as well. So, um, so that's uh, probably the best answer I can come up with. And again, no verse. This one? All right, so this is a huge one. All right, oh. All right, well, this is a, this is a story of a tragedy. Um, All right. Um, 
A child is molested by a parent from age five until she leaves home at 16. And during that time, her parents go to church on Sundays and send her to Sunday school. And now she is unable to recognize how God would allow that to happen to her. So, um, so what, what about that situation? You know, why, why do bad things happen, particularly to innocent children? Um, but, but, but why do they happen? And what next? Because, because that has now changed her thinking about God and Jesus. Um, so that is, um, that is a hard problem. Um, let me, um, let me, uh, go to, uh, chapter 14. Sorry, page 14 of the New Testament. So in the back, page 14. I'll give you a minute to get there. (coughs) All right. So uh, page 14, um, chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel. And uh, Jesus puts before them another parable, starting in verse 24. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And then Jesus explains the parable on the on the next page, starting in verse 36. The disciples say, explain that to us. And he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So he explains this and he says, basically, God has his reasons. Um, God has his reasons why God doesn't pull up the evil, the, the evil weeds in the garden right now. Why does God let the evil persist in this world instead of simply yanking it out and leaving the good wheat, uh, there next to it? Um, I first, I first became aware of the real meaning of this parable, um, gosh, 15 years ago. There was a story about a grisly serial killer who was who was a deacon in his church and uh, showed up on Sundays and a, a butter wouldn't melt on his in his mouth. And then, you know, the rest of the time he was this monster. And um, Jesus doesn't give an answer. He says, "Well, I mean, he does." He says, "He says." Um, in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Jesus explains it in his parable. He doesn't explain, help me understand how that actually works in the real world. How would getting rid of this, this bad person somehow harm everybody else? So I don't, I don't have an answer. Jesus, Jesus, um, is aware of the problem. Jesus tells us about the problem, but he doesn't provide an answer except, um, except that, uh, for reasons that we cannot fathom, that we're not privy to, God allows evil to exist alongside of good here in this world. Um, so, so I don't have an answer to that. The, the book of Job, probably one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. Um, we don't know exactly how far back it goes, but it's quite old. Um, and in it, it wrestles with this question, why do bad things happen? 
to people that God says he loves. Um, that, that unspeakably bad things happen to, to Job, even though God has said, look at this guy, he's the best. He's, you know, my favorite person. And then bad things happen to him. And <laughs> we never get an answer. So the, the, the follow-on part of this question says, um, The follow-on part of this question says, um, what can you do standing off to the side, understanding how this person has now got a, um, a distorted image of God because of, because of what has happened to them in their life? What can you do? Um, well, my answer is that um, you can show an accurate picture of God that... that uh, you know, it may not be enough. It may not be enough to to uh, overcome the trauma that this person has has been subjected to. But as somebody who is in their life, somebody who who um, knows them now, uh, you can you can do your best to present an accurate image of God um, by letting them know, uh, letting them see better yet, letting them see God's love because of the way that you relate to them. Um, so. There may be um, uh, therapy, uh, particular therapy that would help with this. Because her problem is with God, uh, I would recommend a Christian counselor to somebody that maybe could get her into a, um, a group setting where she could talk to other people about her circumstances. And um, I don't know if she'd be willing to do that, but it's something that um, she might she might be willing to. So let's do uh, let's do one more. And I, if, if you put one in, I'll follow up with you later. So, pick one. All right. Oh, that's a prayer card. Pick again. All right. All right. Okay. Well, after that heavy topic, here's one that's a little lighter. Wouldn't it be funny if I said, oh, and now here's one that's even worse. Uh, okay, so um, what does the Bible say about dinosaurs? What does the Bible say about dinosaurs? D- does anyone here remember the um, the Far Side, the comic strip, back when we read newspapers? There was a comic strip, uh, just a single panel comic strip called The Far Side. And there was one that, that I've always loved. It's Noah is... is um, He's indignant with the animals on the ark, and and he's saying, saying, well, I guess that's it for the unicorns. But from now on, the lions are confined to deck C. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, so so uh, maybe maybe uh, the answer is um, that uh, is that they vanished in the flood. I don't know. Um, that would be kind of poor management um, if. Uh, if God allowed that to happen, because the whole point of the ark was to rescue everything. Um, so uh, the the short answer is, what does the Bible say about dinosaurs? Not a thing. Um, I, I can say that with confidence. I, I've got word search software in my office, and I could do a search, and I'm pretty confident dinosaurs does not appear. Um, uh, you know, behind this is a question, you know, how do we deal with uh, questions about the age of the earth? Um, and uh, and how do we relate to the the um, the description of creation that's in 
chapter one of the book of Genesis. And uh, I have a long answer, but um, but so this is all being recorded. <laughs> it'll be it'll be when I have my ecclesiastical trial, it'll be it'll be evidence. So so let me ask you this. What does the world look like? You know, what is what is the shape of the world? If I walk outside this building, what do I see? I see a big flat plate and a big blue dome over it, right? That's just that's what I see. Now, if I get uh, if I download a picture from the NASA website, I see a totally different picture of what the world is like. Now, here's my question: Which one of those is true? Which one of them is admissible as evidence in a court? I have never been up there. I've never seen the earth from that way, right? I have said, no, my perspective is this is a dome and a plate, and we're, we're on the plate, and there's a big dome above it. So it's, I would be offering true testimony if I said, this is what the world is like. So I'm not lying, and I'm not mistaken. I'm simply saying, from my perspective, knowing what I know, this is what is going on. And I think that, I think it's appropriate to read the book of Genesis, um, as, as the answer to the questions, what is the world like? What is God doing here? And, um, I should, I should do, uh, uh, chapter one of Genesis is a great, it's a great story and it's worth, it's worth, um, I'm trying to decide how many sermons I could get out of it. Um, but it's, it's really good. Um, but, um, but, so I'm going to stop there because I could stumble around. But um, the Bible doesn't say anything about dinosaurs. Um, I will tell you as a, as a mediocre Christian, you know, I do my best or on a good day I do my best and some days I don't do my best. Um, I will tell you, I see no conflict between uh, science and religion. Uh, that was a conflict for me. I went to an engineering school. Um, it was a real stumbling block for me. Uh, and uh, part of becoming a Christian was was overcoming that that um, that false uh, choice between uh, truth and fiction, uh, between science and, and uh, faith. Um, Jesus says that He is the way and the truth and the life. If we pursue the truth, we are actually pursuing Jesus. So there's nothing to fear about, you know, going to the museum and seeing the dinosaur skeletons that they've reconstructed, uh, recognizing that within their, their province they are doing what they can. We've just spent three years arguing over what is science. So re- recognize science is an evolving field itself. But, but I think that they are moving in the direction of truth. And if you follow, uh, if you follow us, if you pursue a search for truth, you are actually pursuing search for Jesus. So I don't think there's anything to be afraid of there. So with that, I think we will stop. Let us pray. God, um, uh, you knew before I read the question about the, the girl who was who was a victim of the evil that you have permitted to be in this world. 
Lord, we do not understand. And maybe our minds are too small or whatever. We, we don't know. You don't tell us why there is so much evil in the world. So help us to hold fast to your promise that you're aware of it too. There will be justice and mercy. There'll be mercy because sometimes the evil is in us. And there will be justice because you cannot sit back and ignore injustice. Help us to remember most of all, Lord, that Jesus came to participate in the evil of this world, ultimately to be killed by the evil of this world, to show us that you are not aware that you you have come down out of heaven to face the troubles of this world, but not only to experience them, but to do something about them. Help us to be patient, Lord, trusting in your wisdom, and help us to show the love that that was so lacking in the upbringing of this girl that she was not able to see you as a loving God. Help us all to be loving in a way that that contributes to what you're doing to reach out to the hurting. And God, give us confidence that in your time, when Jesus returns and makes all things new, you will wipe away every tear. We pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.